North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Dr. Koontz, this week, I don't know if I have so much a question, so much as a comment that then I think you'll be able to comment on that will lead us into our ongoing discussion on well, the value of land and the uh, what it plays as a, the place that it plays in the casino. Um, and then that means for anybody who is level-headed and wanting to endure through what seems to be coming upon Western civilization, uh, a key uh, part of the portfolio, you might say, um, something to keep an eye on, something to not let be stolen from you, if at all possible, and so forth. And so here, here's the comment. Um, in the last week, I read uh, Naomi Wolf's book, The Bodies of Others. Naomi Wolf is a world-renowned feminist, somebody who I would 
prior to 2020 have absolutely nothing in common with. Um, I would <laughs> I would not read one of her books. We would not be friends. Um, we'd probably despise each other. Although we both like free speech, and and that's sort of uh, where our paths begin to go the same direction after 2020. Uh, the book is a, her own sort of memoir and cataloging of the history as she sees it in the last couple of years. And certainly uh, having been ostracized as a rank conspiracy theorist, um, those who are regular listeners to the show might, might find some value in the book, um, especially as she attempts to tie a lot of this to the, uh, the long-term goals of the CCP. That said, uh, the part that really goes toward what we're talking about today is her initial uh, memoir again talks about how much she loved her life in the South Bronx and the kind of multicultural melting pot dream come true for immigrants and well-established people alike where poor and rich live very close to each other, where there were all sorts of variety of uh, startup shops, uh, but many of them, most of them small places where uh, people were family run uh, and that it represented to her the best of, of America. And when uh, the initial lockdowns began and her husband and her having lived in countries that were under totalitarian regimes or spent time in totalitarian countries before said, wait a minute, we know what this is. They got out of town to their cabin up in, in uh, North New York. Um, two years later, as they're visiting again, they noticed all these shops are gone, but there's a new Starbucks. There's a couple of banks that have opened. There's mm-hmm. a, yeah. a, a macro stores have come in and, and taken up this property. Um, and that made me think very much of our conversation about the casino and how the house, the house always wins when you're in the casino. So what are your thoughts? It does. And let's just take those two places to start with, because that'll get us into discussions this week and next about places that are pretty distant from anything touched by the Hudson River, but the dynamic is the same. And so if you listen to this and you live in a Western country, let alone the United States, especially, these dynamics are going to apply sooner or later at larger or smaller scales for you. So the reason the South Bronx, or or let's say the Bronx generally, was historically one of the most middle-class parts of New York City is because it was not densely, it was not subject to the same real estate market that the island of Manhattan and then eventually Brooklyn, which was a separate borough, were. So you still have this on Staten Island among the five boroughs where it, for a variety of usually originally commercial and then almost simply speculative reasons, just isn't worth people's time. And that leaves land relatively affordable. So Staten Island is sociologically more like New Jersey than the other four boroughs. It's largely middle-class white homeowners. This also causes Staten Island to be Republican. So New York also had greater political variety when it had greater, let's say it this way, real estate variety. And the Bronx would not have been different. So you could have found, for example, very culturally conservative Missouri Synod Lutherans in the Bronx. We had some of our biggest schools and churches there among the five boroughs. Much of that is gone. Not all of it is gone, but much of it is gone. And the reason that you could do that was that the Bronx didn't have a whole lot particularly to offer commercially. What's going to change through the 70s, the 80s, and then what happened to basically every major American city in the past two years is that you can put people into increasingly expensive rental forms of housing 
and then serve them with a lifestyle that feels relatively good. And you're going to do that by offering, here's your Starbucks, here's your Target, here's your whatever. So the way of life is going to be vastly different because it, it really cannot be centered on families or as you get fetishized, either when talking about the past or usually when talking about various non-white groups in the present, the community, right? You can't really have communities because you can't afford to have communities. In order to have a community, you would want to have, for example, the ability for people to form families and stay there. Or you would want the, the ability for people to actually own a business and stay there. And if they can't do that, then they're going to end up and their whole life is essentially going to be one long rental, right? So you are, because marriage is easy to dissolve, you are renting this relationship with this person. You're renting your, your housing forever. You are renting your ability to make a living forever because you don't own any of this, right? So maybe you work for Amazon or whatever, but your life is conditional upon the goodwill of these various rental situations. And that happened to our cities before it happened to the rest of the country. A lot of what we're going to talk about this week and next is about what is, and I want to talk about Northern New York in a second, is about what is ostensibly rural America. I think that's a much more various place than a lot of people realize. But this happened to cities first. So it happened to the Bronx 50 or 60 years ago now in many ways. And Naomi Wolf is remembering, I think, really a fragment of those things because the Bronx was a much more stable place in the 20s or 30s or 40s than it was in the 80s or 90s and certainly than it has been in this century. So these kinds of things, the, re the reason cities matter is whether the listener likes them or not they usually show you dynamics at work in everyone's life sooner or later, unless a regime changes, right? Unless the casino is imploded or the ownership changes or whatever, right? So, so those dynamics of everything turning into a rental happen in cities first. Northern New York, I don't really think is different. It's that rural America goes from being ostensibly self-sustaining, and this changes earlier in Eastern states than it does in the Midwest, because the Midwest has so much more to offer in a, let's say, like a commercial crop scenario. So the East has to change rapidly because it just cannot compete with the production levels that you get in the Midwest or California. So the rural Northeast, especially places like the Adirondacks, north of there, all the way up to Kingston on the, on the Canadian border, these are going to become almost ghost towns. And this is a dynamic that is going on already in the 19th century in some places because there's so much land available west of there. People just leave and leave and leave. So Vermont has more people in like 1800 than it does in, you know, 1950. So as these places get depopulated, what replaces them? For a while, nothing, right? Which if she's talking about, oh, well, we had a cottage and there were local businesses and stuff, I believe her. But I don't believe that those business owners would be easily able to pass on that business to the next generation or that I grew up, I basically grew up in this town, <laughs> that people who grow up there can live there even if they want to. If you want to live there, you have to do blue collar service jobs or teach public school. That's almost effectively it. You have like one doctor, maybe a lawyer or two. That's kind of it. So it's not really self-sustaining and it 
economically, right? And so what she was probably seeing as a renter, and you always have people like this, because in the Northeast, it's all kind of close together. So people will come up from Philadelphia to where I grew up, or they'll come up to Kingston area or the Adirondacks from maybe New York City or whatever. And then eventually those people long before 2020 move into the area. So Mm -hmm. they're from Massachusetts. Now they live in New Hampshire. They're from, you know, Bernie Sanders is not from Vermont, right? He's not a native, let's say, right? He's got that thick non-Vermont accent still. So these dynamics are that eventually they, they move there. Obviously land prices go up. It gets that much more expensive for people from there to buy that. And then eventually that's going to drive what is possible for consumerism. So, because what attachment does the guy from Brooklyn really have to this local business run by somebody that has a very different accent and goes to a congregational church or whatever. So this is how these places change. They just change a lot more slowly. And so there's a long period in each of them where you can like see the death happening, but there's no economic rebirth of any kind. Whereas in a city, maybe that place is going to be, it gets burned down, right? In 2020, well, it's going to be redeveloped (laughs) because it's still in a city and there's plenty of people, right? But in a rural area, all the, the, the very same process is happening. It's just going slow. So this gets us to the idea of of land rushes of various kinds, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. and and particularly then, I think this is amplified in the rural areas of America today by large, sometimes global corporations, sometimes individuals who are billionaires, yeah. uh, buying up the land that they're not even going to use, may choose not to use it on purpose for various ideological agendas. But point right. being that it is harder and harder yet still for those who grew up in rural America to stay there because those who aren't even there are becoming the lords of the land. And, you know, you can't, you can't right. hunt deer on the king's land. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't. And, you know, I, for me, the, the epitome of this is that the Grand Ole Opry, which has been on the air since I want to say the 1930s, is one of the showcase pieces for mainstream country music. So if you grew up even in the rural Northeast, you would you would know something about it, let alone if you grew up anywhere else. Grand Ole Opry, one of its main sponsors now is Dollar General. So Dollar General is where you can get all kinds of junk. I have my, one of my, you know, hunting sweatshirts is from Dollar General. So I I am also a patron because especially in rural areas, it's, it's all that there is. Hmm. There is nothing left. Like there's no business left run by someone you actually know. And then in places like this, you will know his extended family and everything like that and what's going on with him. That's just kind of how it functions. It's just dollar general and and people that, you know, do work there, but, but they work there for something that is, I don't, I don't even, I don't know where it's headquartered. It's far away. And the stuff is all from China, even when it's like American flag baseball caps. So all of that is, is over. And dollar general is, I think one of the chief signs of that. Now what it replicates is the general store, Mm -hmm. which Maybe people know from Western movies or something, but long before that, that's just the way that things get sold in a rural area because you don't need that many different things in this shop and that shop and this other shop. So it's all going to be in one place and you go there and the guy owns it and he's got string and he's got knives and he's got pickles and whatever you want. Now that's all sold to you by corporate America, shipped to you from China. And all that you really have left is a service employee whom you do know. 
So that is the way that these things work. And what's going to happen when everyone is a renter is that then the, pe the people, somebody is going to own, there will be landlords, is that you will turn either into or back into a tenant on what in New York was called a patroonship. So all the way back when New York was owned by the Dutch, they set it up as essentially a giant number of plantations running all up and down the Hudson River Valley. And this was the case long after our revolution. In the 1830s, there's even a whole, they call it the anti-rent war, where renters revolt against the idea that their entire lives should be centered around renting. You get a similar situation in Rhode Island with Doors Rebellion. So it's not like these kind of things haven't happened before. They always happen when people have a sense that they rent their whole lives. And that creates inevitable resentment in people, okay? That their lives are on loan, that they owe their lives to somebody else. The thing that I wonder about is how, what kind of shape that would even take in modern America, because it relies on especially pent up masculine resentment, right? In order to revolt against the patroon who probably lives most of the time down in New York City anyway, you have to have a lot of men who are upset together, <laughs> right? Or in Doors Rebellion, they were revolting against the idea that you had to own land in order to vote. So if I can't get men, it, one, if I can't biologically produce men, because because if I measured their testosterone, it would be too low to register as a man and say the year 1840 or whatever, if I could compare those things. But if I can't get the people who are, let's say, biologically male to be together and agreed on something in a coherent way, then I don't really need to worry about this. And people can be pushed around and more and more can be bought up because they'll just kind of grumble and then move on with life. I mean, something like that just happened in North Dakota, where they sort of hesitated on giving, on granting, letting the sale of lots and lots of farmland go forward around, I think, the Grand Forks area to Bill Gates. But finally, it happened because it's not like someone's going to stand on the land and just resist its occupation or something. So this idea that that people become renters, this has happened before. I think it is happening particularly quickly, that is that even rural areas are beginning to see kinds of development and change, especially negative change, at a city-like pace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the other things that Wolf pointed out in her book is how much of the land being bought up, both in our cities and, and in the country, are being bought by what you might call foreign powers, uh, actual other countries uh, with a financial agenda. Um, right. And I, I didn't know that was really something possible. I hadn't really thought it through like that you would ever just sell yourself to someone else. But like that, but that's like what <laughs> slavery is, right? Is that you've, yeah. you've sold yourself. But what's happening, I think a little bit is we're, we're actually selling the next generation uh, in, into slavery here. That No, that's so good because at the heart of any form of slavery are, I think, both betrayal and fear. So you could say that, I mean, when we talk about the history of slavery in the United States, let's just go not even try to get exotic with indentured servitude. We'll just talk about slavery of black people in the United States. At the, at the basis of that is a 
in American racial terms, a betrayal by their own of them into this system. That's how these sales things work, capture and then sale of captives. In addition to that, there could also be fear. So when you sell yourself into slavery, either literally that happens in the Old Testament, for example, or figuratively, then you are dealing with some kind of fear of the future such that this present certainty is better than anything that you could imagine that would entail your freedom. That fear may also entail a betrayal, I think you're, this is where it's just so spot on, of future generations. So your fear of being uncomfortable or your fear of sacrifice or your fear of missing out on economic opportunities would then entail betrayal of future generations. And this happens also when, for example, land is sold or just divested altogether. And then future generations, yes, quote, have a better job. But I think that a big issue that you have here, and this was always an issue, one of my favorite just really obscure books about American history is called Yankee Exodus by a guy named Stuart Holbrook, wrote a lot of really interesting stuff, especially about the Pacific Northwest. But he was of, let's say, colonial Yankee derivation. And he was, the book starts out with him just touring abandoned places in Vermont where his ancestors would have lived three generations prior. And that when you give up that land, yeah, maybe your great grandkids are going to be richer than you are. Or they're gonna, you know, they're gonna buy everything that they have from the pottery barn. That's, you know, I guess whatever, whatever peak living is to you. The problem is you were enjoying things like just to be quaint and to keep Holbrook's theme, you had quilting bees and a church. <laughs> and both those things are gone. So your great grandkids are a lot wealthier, their teeth look better, but they're not really living at anything like the same quality that you enjoyed and sort of took for granted when you gave up that land. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they might be just smoking crack on video on their own laptop and uh, recording <laughs> prostitution <laughs> rings just for fun. Right. Cause they got nothing better to do. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. he's supposed to be lace curtain Irish. That's a whole different saga. <laughs> yeah. Similar dynamics. Yeah. yeah. But uh, the point is that they're, they're losing their souls in this process and, yeah, uh, right. and not really gaining. I mean, pottery barn is, is, nice um but Mid, in, yeah. yeah it's not like <laughs> i mean am, am i going to go to civil war for the pottery barn no <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm really not but so um i dropped that term civil war on purpose there's been uh, at least two articles i've seen in the last week from what you would call they used to be called mainstream press now they're called alt-right just because they don't agree with certain mainstream press but these guys weren't like deep corner um uh, chan 4chan kind of things um and uh, uh, both of them acknowledging that the divide in America is is so significant that uh, civil war is inevitable. Um, that sounds pretty intense, but I, you know, I, I'm willing to be a hearer to the argument. Um, and that then also for me uh, cross pollinates with uh, Sri Lanka, the collapse of Sri Lanka, and pent up masculine resentment definitely taking place as the presidential palace was stormed. People taking selfies while they're on the couch, and then they put the whole thing up in flames. Uh, I saw some video of the president running with his suitcase for a military ship by which he would get off, uh, maybe it was prime, prime minister, but by which he would get off of, of the island. Um, so uh, trying to push back into the idea of regime regime change as well here, you know, yeah. um, 
where is the pent in masculine pent up masculine resentment? I, I think there is some of it out there. Um, organization seems to be a factor. Um, I'm not calling for a civil war. Please don't hear. That's what I'm saying. Um, but uh, it it would seem that if if there is going to be a a shift that isn't just more of the same, that is, Bill Gates owns more land, Jeff Bezos has more DAs in his pocket, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Kamala Harris's new wife is the actual president or, or some, you know, the crazy, crazy just goes, gets worse and worse. Like uh, the only thing that does seem to be counter to this is that you have the, the mythological red wave where the elections are free and fair, or you have people so angry that they, they just start taking back. And so I guess my question is a little bit like uh, how realistic is any of that? Um, uh, Is it possible for uh, uh, metrosexual American males to have uh, resentment? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Where where are we here? So no, no, because their masculine energy also gets, has, has been sublimated. So if you realize that there's just this, sort of quotient that after all the xenoestrogens, they're still going to be masculine in certain biologically dangerous ways. What you want to then do is sublimate their energy into useless things. So you sublimate their drive into, you know, pure engineering. So it's safe to work at this company because they don't bother me too much. And the diversity training isn't too bad. So I will sublimate my capacities for organization and thought into engineering what what it is that they're asking me to engineer, or I will sublimate even more often and more broadly, all of my energies into side projects or projects for other people, especially without the ability, not just for lucrative investment on my part with the cash that I gain, but for investment that would involve land tenure. Because that is one of the biggest differences that I see between the present, even for very conservative people, and the past, is that land tenure is practically everything, not only for, and I think that people are aware of this, not only for immigrants coming to the United States and wanting to homestead, not in the you know, contemporary sense of that word where like you have chickens, but in the sense where, according to the Homestead Act, you settle, I think it's 160 acres. And after a certain amount of tenure, I think it's five years, maybe, you are no longer a squatter, you're an owner. Okay, And that's what we use to settle vast portions of, especially the middle of the United States. If that energy is then sublimated into, I have built this kind of a business, or I have built this real estate firm, or I have built whatever, you know, content creation, whatever it is that I'm doing. The question then would be, how do you pass that on? Because in the case of land, you're passing on the land. Okay. And then the land is cared for. In the case of everything else, it's a little more tenuous, or sometimes in the case of content creation, a lot more tenuous. I mean, I don't, my, you know, my sons will say that they want to be a pastor, but I don't expect my sons, like one day I will pass on brief history of power. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so let alone, I can't pass on, you know, speaking engagements or writing or other things that I do. So there are certain things that can be passed on in a sense. There's very little, if not, perhaps there is nothing that can be passed on in the way and with the effect on future generations that land can be passed on. 
So whereas in the past you have land rushes at various times, and the one that we're going to talk about in a little while is the rush to get into Oklahoma when that's opened up to non-Indian settlement in 1890. But there are many before that, and there's land speculation. Why are they doing that? They're not just doing it because it's lucrative. There are people doing that. There has always been a casino element to an unsettled environment, which was for most of our history and most of our country. But in addition to that, there are people who just want to live there and they want to own something and to remain somewhere. So if that's the case, then they're not thinking, okay, how am I going to get wealthy in the next 10 years? They're, they're, they're thinking, at least implicitly, maybe this wasn't always articulate, what will be here for my great-grandchildren? The kind of thinking that we talked about, I think it was last week, is really made much more possible, even is only realistic, when land is involved. How do I think in terms of centuries? Yeah, it gets me on a tangent that we probably shouldn't chase too much. But in you know the information age, information work, the the information economy. Certainly, we're in an information warfare, and yet information is not real property. It it yeah. cannot be as real as land. The, the one thing I thought that might compete with land, it's not going to be the same level because you need the land to have it. Would be herds, you know, your animals, um, your husbandry of what's on that land. Uh, yeah. But before that, you need the land, uh, and so. Yeah. Uh, how do you think forward two and three generations beyond the name um, that you have a history to pass forward, an identity to pass forward? What else can be left behind? And uh, well, nothing American made these days or very few things American made yeah. these days are going to be going to be passed forward. Uh, it makes me think of someone else. Uh, Naomi Wolf talked about in, in the book where uh, one of the uh, family owned restaurants in upper New York area that had been. Uh, it was in second generation, hoping to pass to third generation. So kind of attempting to be the best of, um, and the, uh, the pots and pans in the kitchen were from the original opening, you know, I don't forget how many 80 years ago or whatever. And she said, she'd never seen anything like him. You couldn't buy him today. They were just, they were too well right. made. They were just too yeah. well made. Right. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, they, they, Getting into the the collapse of things, the inability to to do what we used to do, it all revolves around this not thinking toward a future, or the future is subscription services and and not um, uh, enduring. Which you would think for all the talk about green energy, blah blah blah, uh, that we would care a little bit more about making things to last. But let's let's shift from there um, into sure. uh, fragile family farms and and the Oki event. Because what you're looking at when you are a tenant, also on the land, let alone living your life by subscription service, is not any one specific arrangement of that subscription service. So I'm using this modern term to describe the way that a lot of people farmed, especially in lands that are marginal farming areas. They're not really that great. That's why they are settled last so places like Central and even Western Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Panhandle, the Texas Panhandle, Southwestern Kansas, even Southeastern Colorado, these are places that are going to be, by the beginning of the 1930s, called the Dust Bowl. Before that, there are places where people are farming in a very hard scrabble way, but they're farming as tenants, many of them, and the ones that are not are fragile because they're relying on a system that is not itself terribly sustainable. So it's hard to compete. 
with people farming in better areas, naturally better areas, east of the Mississippi, especially on a commercial market. And your land itself will in that part of the part of the country eventually prove to be itself very fragile. So the, the issue of fragility or of being anti-fragile is that in nature, being anti-fragile has to rely on some kind of underlying condition, like it rains enough that if you know things fail for the next two years on your farm in Ohio, eventually it will rain enough that you can start producing more things. That's not necessarily true in what's going to become the Dust Bowl. The family farm is fragile anyway, economically, as it becomes not terribly helpful for the amount or the kind of production that is necessary by the time we can use railroads to take things everywhere. So I can get fresh vegetables from around the world. Why do I need you to raise peppers in any kind of quantity in the Texas panhandle? So what's going to happen is that those various kinds of fragility are going to come together in this part of the world that's going to be known as the Dust Bowl. What also happens is that a variety of weather changes are going to be read, and this is very interesting compared to when we talked about climate change a little while back, they will be read variously as the result of poor farming. That's poor farming practices. And that that's partly true. And that's probably, if you've heard about the Dust Bowl, that's probably what you know about it is that they used up the topsoil. Mm -hmm. So, and the reason that you know about it that way is because when you're taught about nature or agriculture, you're probably taught really almost exclusively about human responsibility. At the time, of course, this part of the world is one of the hotbeds of, let's say, revivalistic Protestantism. So when those people are looking at the sky or they're looking at the earth, and I don't think they're off base here, they're looking at this as a display of God's both blessings and also his judgments. So if, they, if their harvests fail for two years or three years, or it's really dry in 35, they're going to see this as God wants us to change our lives. So there are just a variety of ways that people look at the very same events, even at the very same time, let alone later. And these people are going to see these problems as our fragility is not just because we did something wrong. That's, that's true. I, I think any farmer would understand that misuse of the topsoil or exhaustion of the topsoil is going to cause big problems. The wind, the weather that's going to blow that topsoil that's going to make it hard to see in the middle of the day sometimes in some places. That is not our fault. That's not our responsibility. It is simply happening to us. And we have to figure out how to respond. So things that seem perhaps quaint to some of the listeners are not quaint to them at all, like praying for rain. But there can also come a time where that fragility is going to hurt you so much that you're, you're basically broken now. And now you're going to look for something else. So what happens in the Dust Bowl is somewhat unique in American history. I, there are some other examples of this, but it's, this is the best and the biggest one, is of migration in the United States 
by native-born American citizens to another part of the United States out of hardship, okay? So that's different from land rushes prior to it because the people that are, you know, trying to run in all on the same day and some of them trying to get there sooner than others, that's where sooner comes from in Oklahoma, I think, they think. Those land rushes are optimistic things. Now, people might be desperate when they're rushing into something, but they're optimistic, like they, they think the future is going to get better. The present is fine, but the future will be better. Okay. That's an optimism that for a long time, you know, like when Reagan would talk about California, his adopted home state, he would talk about optimism. You know, this is an optimistic place. So the Dust Bowl is a really strange example because it's a lot of people seeking a better life. Yes. And we will narrate that in a little bit. But they're seeking a better life because their life has effectively collapsed around them. And it, it collapsed because they simply could not maintain tenure on the land. And it's, it's those kinds of folks, and there, there are a couple other examples, but it's those kinds of folks who are going to create a whole new culture in a, on a different kind of a land in California. And they're going to do that out of this just absolutely severe hardship to begin with. And most of what I know about this history comes from uh, the Grapes of Wrath, honestly. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I remember most from that book is that when they when they got to California, it wasn't it wasn't better right away. That's for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. So they they can't really do a land rush in a classic sense. And the reason that I pick the Okies is because of that hardship. Because. The hardships that many of them went through are hardships that many of us either are going through or probably will go through. They don't have the characteristic optimism necessarily about life. Now, The Grapes of Wrath is a book that in the telling of the Okies was neither accurate nor becoming. So just constant depravity and sadness, they did not find to be the rule. And there is some, some evidence that we'll probably get into next week of, of why that was wrong exactly. But they generally did not like it. And they partly didn't like it because it made them into what they did not want to be. Perhaps the listener has already made the Okies just from what I said about the Dust Bowl into this in his mind. They did not want to be thought of as victims. They were not victims. So Steinbeck the author of The Grapes of Wrath, was heavily involved with the official federal relief effort to poverty in the Great Depression generally, but to the Okies in particular. That's where, that's where the novel came from, from his experience with them. And that position outside of them does affect how he thinks about them. Uh, the Okies resemble people to whom they are, let's say, somewhat distantly related by virtue of a previous wave of migration. And that is the people in the up and down the Appalachian mountain system. It's a very similar people group in not really having thrived and probably having sought their land, although this is harder to say in the case of Appalachia, out of initial hardship. It's hard to say because we don't have records of who ran away and who just went away from indentured servitude in colonial America. But it's, it's very probable that 
most of the people that settle the Appalachian mountain system initially are fleeing some kind of servitude, either before they're allowed to, or, or right as soon as they are allowed to. The Okies are similar to the situation. And in both cases, you have peoples that don't want to be portrayed as victims. They are by the government in both the 1930s and in the case of Appalachia, the 1960s, very much portrayed as victims. So if you just stop the podcast for a second and you go Google Oki or Oki family or Oki migrant, you will find probably photographs by a woman named Dorothea Lang. And you'll want to notice that her, her photos, the originals are generally on display either in San Francisco or Berkeley. Now, San Francisco and Berkeley are, I don't know, five or six hours north of where most Okies settle, far away, not actually places of Okie settlement. If the Okies went to a city, it was Los Angeles. And they are there because they are part of, let's say, liberal Americas. And I mean that in like a 1930s sense. So we're not talking about drag queen story hour. I just mean kind of like economically leftist maybe socialistic, some of them actually being communist, but liberal America's way of thinking about these suffering people. Okay. And at the time, a lot of dynamics in the 1930s in America, a lot of the dynamics are, are very much class dynamics because our levels of racial diversity are, are very small. I mean, I mean, even in California, but, but anywhere else. So when you don't have racial diversity, it seems that human groups usually divide up even more strictly along class lines. So these are very, very poor people. And the reaction on the part of liberal America and even liberal California is specifically is, is to pity them and to make them the victims that they don't really want to be. And if you read Grapes of Wrath or even if you watch the old movie of it, notice that there is a movie of it. Think about that then you're going to feel bad for these people. You're also, I think, simultaneously probably going to be a little disgusted by them. And a, a very similar thing happens with Appalachia in the 60s, but I also think it happens with non-white groups, that when you become a victim, you're going to end up being somebody, you're kind of, <laughs> you're kind of a renter forever because your, your, your subsistence, your livelihood is derived from the pity of other people. So you have to keep nurturing that. You're not going to like nurture land that's going to feed you. You need, you need the pity of others. And then if you have that, you can have almost anything you want, I suppose. Hey, Ibram Kendi comes to mind. Yeah, right. I mean, if, if Ibram Kendi needed to make like a living, not so much off academic positions or book deals or whatever, but, but off, let's say, his own work or something like that, without any particular promotion of his writing, he would have a much harder life. I mean, being a renter is not actually, I think in every case, a consignment to misery. Okay, that's, that's something that I want to be understood. Like some people are fine renting psychologically. They're also fine with relying on the pity or the goodwill of others. A lot of times this is, this is why our, I think, our, our politicians are this way, whether they're relating to voters or whether they're relating to donors, that's why they are the kinds of people that they are. It's not that their lives are miserable, like they don't know where their next meal is coming from. It's that 
their lives are miserable or sad or, <laughs> or deplorable because they live a life in conformity to the wishes of others and in dependence upon the wishes of others. And the point of the family farm and the reason that, for example, for a while in California, landowners whom we'll discuss, they're a different class of people, but they, they loved hiring Okies for a while for the same reason that Ford and Chevy and stuff loved hiring people from Appalachia for a while, because there are two people groups that kind of despise the idea of renting, even when most of them do it. Okay. So even if most of them are working for a coal mine or they're working for a factory or they're working for some really big grower, they despise the idea of dependence. And so they won't seek it out. And so they won't unionize. So they actually get hiring preference, preference for a long time in, in different places because the growers know that unlike the Mexicans or the Filipinos, they won't unionize. So that idea of being independent, this is an old American idea. That's why you get your older American groups definitely manifesting it. And the idea here is that if I am independent, it doesn't mean that I am living well. That's also right. The guy that's renting might actually be living better in certain ways. It's just that I am not beholden in the way that he is. That's, that's the big distinction. And spiritually, I think that's much more important to people's everyday lives the idea that they are not beholden, that has a much bigger effect on their behavior than their, let's say, standard of living in purely economic terms. Yeah, what I find interesting is that there is certainly space within Christianity for servitude, right? Like, like mm -hmm. you know, if you can get your freedom, get it. If, if, if not, you know, don't, don't sell yourself into slavery, but if you're a slave, you, you're okay. It, it's actually right. okay, right? So, and taking it out of the, the the hot button term of slavery that the American history has made so sure. so different from kind of the ancient practice of it, um, you think more in terms of uh, social classes that are servant classes. Uh, that does not have to be a, a place of victimhood. Uh, it does not have to be a place of complete disempowerment. Uh, one can take great pride in in being less than the king. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's an important distinction to make here while at the same time acknowledging that it, it's in our political formula, which is something of a religious zeitgeist for us as Americans that like, mm -hmm. no, it's not okay. <laughs> like, like there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot of us that are like, no, I, you know, not for me, not for me. Thank yeah, you. Right. Uh, and um, to just to make that distinction, this is not necessarily a religious um, Christian ethic we're talking about. Although uh, I think without Christianity's, view of the value of the individual person, it would be hard to get to this kind of political formula historically. And it's not accidental that it does arise in the West out of uh, Christian England uh, initially. Right. Yeah. And there is a speech I, I sent around to a few people around the 4th of July, but there's a speech that Calvin Coolidge gives in 1925. I can send it to you and, and we'll put it in the show notes, I suppose, about the idea that America on its, that would be our sesquicentennial. So he, yeah, he was in Philadelphia because there was a big exhibition in South Philly for the sesquicentennial. That land has been redeveloped. I was <laughs> so just thinking about exhibitions yeah, you, in South Philly are still happening all the time. Yeah, there are They're exhibitions different kinds. of uh, other things. Yeah, gunplay, uh, tricks with guns. But 
he gives a speech about how the American conception of liberty is impossible. Not only, and I think people have said this, that, you know, they'll, they'll quote the founders saying that unless we have a religious people, we, we won't have a republic. He wasn't just saying that. He wasn't saying it in an instrumental sense that like a Unitarian, like John Adams could say it. Coolidge was a Congregationalist, a Trinitarian Christian. He was saying it in the sense that you could not get the conceptions of life behind and below the written documents, therefore much less sustain what the written documents say you're supposed to sustain without Christianity. It's, it's not going to happen. No one's going to say this person has intrinsic value as a unique creation of God for whom Christ has shed his blood. I mean, that, that's going to change the way that you look at other human beings. And it's going to drive what in Coolidge's telling is meant by equality, which for him is not even so much equality of opportunity, let alone equality of outcome. Coolidge isn't saying we're all going to be the same or that we are all the same in our talents and powers. He's saying that we are spiritually the same. Therefore, our law must respect that when we deal with one another. And that idea, he doesn't see as possible, nor do I, apart from Christianity. I don't think it's therefore coincidental that if you get a group of people like the Okies who are almost entirely Protestant Christians, you get a a very firm push in the direction of independence of life. Now, some of that is, like you said, not theologically requisite or even necessary, but it's going to be a drive in their life because it is what they understand as how the world was set up. Well, I think to some extent in the same way, you, you cannot have anything other than what is happening now to our civilization happen once you have removed the value of human life, right. which then we have done on on multiple fronts. I mean, there are there are atheists who believe the unborn are human life, right? But then we have removed the 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 instrumental spirituality behind this concept. So the yeah. atheist who believes in the value of human life is an outlier living on the fumes of a spiritual system that they they have rejected, but they're they, they will have right. trouble passing forward their convictions. Right. Um, and because then we have intentionally and instrumentally removed Christianity from the essence of not only political discourse, but civilizational discourse. And in fact, it has come to be something that is, uh, I don't want to say persecuted because that just sounds wrong, but, but it is, uh, demonstrably, uh, no longer polite society to, to think such things. It, it is not a surprise then that within 40 years, 60 years, the structures which that spirituality held up are not just collapsing, but being torn down by the very people inside, you know, follow the tears down our house with their own hands. And, uh, one of the things that keeps going through my head as I look at the news day by day, um, is, is how there's nothing new under the sun and, uh, how Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, wasn't just a place known for, for sodomy, uh, that too, but it was, it was a place known for violence to strangers uh, and how the the despising of the human was so evident in the visitation that the angels bring to that place, right. and and uh, the bloodlust, uh, and even Lot, righteous Lot's willingness to give up his own daughters, all of that. It's just kind of like, oh, 
Yeah, slippery slope fallacy. Not not so much a fallacy. <laughs> not so much a fallacy, right. right? Yeah. Yeah, the idea that it's a fallacy is what you say when you think that you're going to get a stop maybe, you know, 25 steps down the slope and you won't trip on step 26 and then just like fall the rest of the way down to the bottom. So slippery slope fallacy is a fallacy when you need, especially for psychological reasons, when you need to say to yourself, I like this much, but, or this is okay, or I need to maintain that this is fine in order to retain my job or whatever sort of your, your need is psychologically speaking or spiritually speaking, but you don't or can't see the momentum that it has. So one reason to study history is because Otherwise, you end up seeing various things as highly disconnected events, which in your own personal life is precisely what you do when you're not paying attention to things. <laughs> so, you know, your wife is behaving like this, or your kids are talking this way, or your boss has not actually spoken to you face to face in two months, or whatever the problem is. And you want to see those as disconnected things, because you can't put together anything coherent, because if you put together something coherent, it would be too much. You know, stories are what you keep away from yourself when you can't handle their power. So you're not going to turn it into a story. It's just a bunch of disconnected events. And this just happened over here and this happened over here and it has nothing to do with each other, right? There is no wholeness to the world that is actually perceptible. The reason that we're putting things together is because not only the things have happened before, there is nothing new under the sun, but also so that you are able to put things together in your own life. So if you see everything turning into a subscription service, then you have to ask yourself, what happens to people when their lives turn into subscription services? Because it's happened before. You know, the people John Steinbeck was working with were in his specific case, living in camps set up by the government. Now, that's kind of a meme, <laughs> you know, uh, they're going to throw us into camps. These people were not thrown into camps forcibly, but they would get in whatever it was that could take them west from Oklahoma or Texas or Arkansas or Missouri. Those are the, those are the four biggest sources of migration to California. And then some of them couldn't even quite get there. So, one of the, the fathers of country music in, in the West, in, in California, Buck Owens, he's, he, his family just kind of breaks down in Arizona for a while and they pick cotton in Arizona because they can't even afford to get to California. Once you get there, what happens? Well, maybe you go into a camp and you're going to go into a camp because you just can't afford anything else. So one thing that you can see if you want to put the story together is that when people become renters of their own lives, one thing that happens is that they will lose any sense of pride that they have, and they will then resort to whatever it is that they are fed. So this is relatively benign in the case of the Okies in the what was called the Farm Security Administration camps, the FSA camps. So it's benign because they're not, they're, they're despised in ways that we can discuss next week, but their, their culture is not necessarily despised. So they get to make newspapers and they get to have concerts that are going to be the genesis of what's going to become country music, what isn't quite yet country music in the early 1930s. And so they do get a sort of a life, 
but this is all a borrowed life and they're living in in tents and but the push to independence was such that there's there's one lady who her husband buys property outside of bakersfield california and that's all they have so they they exhaust what they have saved in order to get this property so maybe you think that's noble then they can't do anything with it for three years. So they camp on their own land for three years. <laughs> they would rather do that than be taken care of <laughs> by somebody else. And once they get enough money together, then they begin to put up a house and they put it up room by room. So one room, that's our house. Another room, now that's our house. <laughs> Here's a kitchen, now that's our house. So this is how they build it. And they stay in that the rest of their lives. Makes me think of codes. You can't do it now. You can't do it now. You definitely can't do it in California. <laughs> so why are they doing that? Because they're, they're, they're doing that because the, the, the idea here is that the land is supposed to provide you with a certain kind of independence. And this will kind of take us into next week. So maybe we can wind up here is that when you think about independence, I don't want the listener to hear some kind of like fetish of rural America. Okay, because there's something difficult here, whether you live in a relatively unpopulated place or whether you live in a city. And the difficulty is not so much, you know, do you, you know, is it crowded and are you okay with that? It's what actually can you do with that land? So in the case of owning land outside of Bakersfield, California, unless you're going to become some kind of big landowner and then a big grower, the land is relatively inhospitable. The first people that, that crossed from the Sierra Nevadas to the, to the coastal range just thought of it as a desert, which is basically what it was. What you do with that land then is not going to be that, it's not going to be that great. So yeah, you live and it, it's at the time, probably not today, but at the time in the 1930s, that is, that is a rural area. The issue here is that rural areas like upstate New York or like, you know, outside Bakersfield in the 1930s is that they're not actually able to, for whatever set of reasons, sustain themselves. So when we're talking about land, think about not just your own land, but the land of the people around you and what is being done with that, because that's going to give you a sense of, is this sustainable, right? Because if the guy next to you is just going to sell for the highest for the highest possible price, then you have a social system that is relatively unsustainable because he's doing what we talked about earlier. He could basically do betrayal and you don't have any choice because he's just selling to whoever. And now your sense of life or the amount of noise in your neighborhood or whatever is going to change radically. Okay. And maybe without zoning, they're just going to put up like a Costco next to you or something. Now you live right next to a Costco. I guess it's convenient, but it's not rural. So the issue here is that rural might denote like, oh, you only have a certain number of people like per square mile. But what you want to actually ask yourself is what are people doing with that land? And one of the things that the Okies don't do or can't do exactly is to make the land their own. Enough of them move to especially the Central Valley of California that we'll talk a lot about next week that they become dominant in certain ways. And we, we'll talk about how they were, how they are or whatever but they don't own the land sufficient to create a settled culture that people would stay in or go away from and then return to. 
So they're going to remain even on that land, relatively speaking, migratory. So a lot of them will, they'll, you know, move out there or maybe even be born there in say 1932, but their parents talk all the time and they have cars. And so they, they go back and they visit the relatives in Oklahoma or Texas. And then when they retire, they go there. Why? Because it's cheaper in Oklahoma or it's cheaper or the taxes are lower in Texas or whatever. So you remain a migrant. It's just that the, the, the periods of migration are just longer. Okay. So you're not moving around all the time, like the Mexican farm workers from harvest to harvest to harvest, but you might move every 10 years to a completely different place. And that's why I picked them because I find them to be honestly emblematic of most of us in modern America, wherever we came from, is that we are relatively speaking migrants and migrants always have to rent because <laughs> you don't have enough capital or, or even motivation to buy and to own. Can I ask, uh, you know, we've got a few minutes here. Yeah. With the, the territory that the Dust Bowl occurred in, the topsoil being lost and whatnot, um, what has become of that landscape now? Is it, is it farmable again? Has there been a recapture? There's been some recapture because just after the Second World War in eastern Colorado, which eastern Colorado is physiolog- physiographically basically just Kansas, right, and Nebraska, is that you get the invention of center pivot irrigation, which is going to enable you to, you know, and if you fly over these areas or if you live near them, you'll see the fields are circular for that reason. It's going to enable you to draw on aquifers and then to irrigate. So you, you get you get much better farming, okay, throughout kind of the, the Great Plains because of that. A lot of it is going to return to ranch because that's just a lot more that sustainable, not in the you know, granola sense of sustainable, but just in the, <laughs> in the carnivore sense, it sure is. <laughs> Goodness. But, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's something you can keep doing and, and, you know, your, your plants that your, your cattle need are, are going to be drought tolerant and stuff like that. So, so ranching just has a, a better ecological future in places like that yeah. than, than water intensive farming. What prevented Okies from being herd farmers? Because the initial capital investment is really high and your average guy, whether he is, they're, they're usually farmers or they're kind of day laborers or they're, they might work in construction. One of the ways to tell this is what did they do when they got to California? And there is ranching in California. There was ranching in California. They don't slide into that. They slide into farming. They slide into construction. They slide into some relatively skilled trades. That's what most of them do. So they, they just don't, it's, it's too capital intensive Mm -hmm. and they're not a people, and this is a drawback of some of these old stock American groups. They're not a people who are able to band together for big projects. They will band together and we'll talk about their churches next week. They will band together in their churches and their churches will help each other. Like if you move to Los Angeles and you're an Okie, you're going to go to church with other the place where you're going to see other Okies is at church reliably. Right. And they are going to help you in a really big way. Right. But five churches are not going to get together and set up a ranching operation like the right. Mormons did. Right, right. Yeah. They're not going to own Coca-Cola. You know, That's correct. In generation. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. All right. Hey, you're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.